0: Okay, so we're going to continue our discussion of refractory wound management. And here are the specific active wound therapies that we're going to discuss in this segment um, of the class. We're gonna talk about growth factors, exogenous growth factors. We're gonna talk about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We're gonna talk about electrical stimulation very briefly. We're gonna talk in depth about negative pressure wound therapy. And then we're gonna talk about skin grafts and myocutaneous flaps. Finally, we'll talk a little bit about your decision making guidelines to try to pull all of this together. So, let's talk about growth factor therapy. Now, we talked a lot in the classes on wound healing about how important growth factors are. We know that they essentially function as the wound healing supervisor. So, what do they do? They attract needed cells to the wound bed. Okay, we need more fibroblast over here. They stimulate cells to reproduce and then they stimulate cells to carry out specific repair activities. We also know that non-healing wounds are frequently characterized by low levels of growth factors which is understandable. If you don't have anybody directing the overall process, you're going to get into trouble. So obviously, adequate levels of growth factors are essential to normal wound healing. What do we have currently available? We have two options for providing exogenous growth factors. One is a a gel, it's a synthetic gel that was developed using recombinant DNA technology and it's applied daily. And then there's another therapy that involves a solution that's derived from the patient's own blood and blood cells. Now one thing I do want to point out about the gel is that it focuses on one type of growth factor as does the solution derived from the patient's own blood. It's primarily platelet-derived growth factor. Now we know that there are many 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 growth factors involved in the repair process. So it may be that as our research um, base grows and as we learn more about the unique mix of growth factors that are operational at any point in time along the wound healing trajectory, we may end up with additional options in the overall field of exogenous growth factor therapy. But right now we're going to describe what we have. So when would you think about using exogenous growth factors? Well, especially if you have refractory diabetic foot ulcers, so wounds where you've done everything right, you've offloaded the wound, you've paired the callus, you've provided systemic support, you've controlled glucose levels, you've established a clean wound bed, and the wound is still not healing. Um, We do know from some studies that it is common to find low levels of growth factors in diabetic foot ulcers. So at this point in time, that is one of the primary indications for exogenous growth factor therapy, and especially for the synthetic gel developed by recombinant um, technology. It can also be used for wounds of neurologic origin. So if you remember way back when we discussed factors impacting on wound healing, and we said that wounds of neurologic Um, origin were sometimes slow to heal and low levels of growth factors are thought to be one contributing factor. As we've said, and this holds true for all types of active wound therapy, this is adjunct therapy only. It never takes the place of the other critical factors, correcting etiologic factors, and overall systemic support. We do have randomized controlled trials, not a lot, but especially the one for the gel developed using recombinant DNA technology, very good quality. How do you use these products? You always start with a clean wound bed. So once again, if the wound is necrotic, debris it. If it's infected, get infection under control. You're going to follow the manufacturer's guidelines with the synthetic gel is applied once a day and the wound bed is kept moist and one thing to be aware of is that the manufacturer of the gel recommends that you limit use to three tubes. There's some limited data that suggests there could be increased um, incidence of malignancy among patients who use more than three tubes. Again very limited data but based on that the manufacturer does recommend limiting use to three tubes. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy, now some of you probably work in centers that provide hyperbaric oxygen therapy and if so you already know a lot about how this works, when to use it and what it doesn't do. So here you see the two types or the two um, approaches to providing hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The chamber on top is known as a monoplace chamber so the patient actually goes in this plexiglass chamber The chamber is filled with oxygen and pressurized, and the patient breathes oxygen under pressure. The bottom looks more like a submarine chamber, and what happens here is a group of patients is in a chamber. The chamber is pressurized, and the patients are breathing 100% oxygen through face masks. But the bottom line is whether you do monotherapy or multiplace, they're breathing 100% oxygen under pressure. Now, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is when you breathe oxygen under pressure, you dissolve oxygen in the plasma itself. And that means that anywhere plasma goes, oxygen goes. Now, compare that to normal function. Normal function, 97% of our oxygen is carried attached to the hemoglobin molecule. Hemoglobin is part of the red blood cell. So, normal function, oxygen goes only where red blood cells can go. If you have very narrow vessels and the red blood cells can't get through, there's no oxygen delivery. But if you hyperoxygenate the plasma, plasma can go where red blood cells cannot. Mm -hmm. So you improve delivery of oxygen to the tissues, specifically in situations where red red blood cells don't penetrate very well. Now, if you oxygenate the tissues or hyperoxygenate the tissues, what are the clinical benefits? Well, first of all, you get relative vasoconstriction, not vasoconstriction to the point of ischemia, but you think about the fact that in a hypoxic setting, all the vessels dilate, trying to get increased oxygen to the wound bed. As a result, you get edema formation because when the vessels dilate, a lot of fluid leaks out. Edema then interferes with oxygenation. So a relative vasoconstriction is helpful in that it eliminates edema. So we've talked about the um, benefits of hyperoxygenation. There's a tenfold increase in the amount of oxygen in the plasma, which is then delivered to the wound bed. So you're not hemoglobin dependent. This means two major things when it comes to wound repair. First of all, remember how critically important it is to control bacterial loads throughout the repair process. And remember that white blood cells use oxygen to kill bacteria. So in increasing oxygen delivery to the wound bed, you increase white blood cells ability to kill bacteria, keep bacterial loads under control. So you reduce the risk of infection and you help eradicate any infection that's present. Secondly, remember that all aspects of wound repair are oxygen dependent and typically you need about 40 millimeters of mercury oxygen in the tissues to support the repair process. So not only are you enabling bacterial control, but you're also facilitating the wound repair process and wounds that are ischemic but viable, hypoxic but viable. So remember, the oxygen is going to get there through the bloodstream but it's going to travel dissolved in the plasma. If you have a wound that where you have viable tissue but it is not healing, that wound can benefit because you know there's enough blood flow to keep the Existing tissue viable, just not enough to support repair. But that means you can hyperoxygenate the plasma, get the oxygen out to the tissues, and help that wound cross the threshold into the ability to repair. So, when would you think about using hyperbaric oxygen therapy? It's not something that's going to help just any wound. There was one point in time, they were trying hyperbaric oxygen therapy for venous wounds, for pressure wounds, not beneficial because ischemia is not the issue with venous wounds. Ischemia is not the issue with pressure wounds. So you wanna think about hyperbaric oxygen as being beneficial for two types of wounds. One is wounds with reversible ischemia, meaning there is plasma flow, but you're not getting enough red blood cells through to meet oxygen needs. We just talked about that in detail. If that doesn't make sense, we'll talk about it more um, when you're here during Bridge Week or you can call us and talk to us because we want to make sure you understand this. The second category of wounds that may benefit are wounds that are complicated by severe or complex infections because how do white blood cells kill bacteria? With oxygen. So white blood cells use oxygen to kill all bacteria and oxygen tends to kill anaerobes outright. So you can see that hyperbaric oxygen therapy could be very beneficial in management of an infected wound. So here are the specific indications. If you have um, arterial ulcers we'll talk more about that in a later class and specifically Wagner grade 3 or 4 where you have severe infection and maybe reversible gangrene reversible necrosis you still have plasma flow so you still have to have plasma flow. Complex infections and specifically refractory osteomyelitis because Bone is very poorly perfused, so it's hard to get adequate levels of antibiotics to the bone, but here's what you need to know. Antibiotics and hyperbaric oxygen have a synergistic response. So if you're treating refractory osteo with antibiotics and with hyperbaric oxygen, those antibiotics are gonna be much more effective. If you have compromised flaps and grafts and the reason they're compromised is because of poor perfusion they still have plasma flow but they're ischemic they're not necrotic but they're ischemic they're hypoxic then they can benefit from hyperbaric oxygen to meet the oxygen needs for repair and finally patients who have a condition known as osteoradionecrosis so we know that radiation therapy has a negative impact on blood vessels into the wound bed or into the tissue and we'll talk more about that in a later class but right now you just need to know that radiation therapy causes progressive damage to the arterioles and the smaller arteries which in turn results in chronic ischemia of those radiated tissues. Now, if that patient develops a wound in that tissue zone where they've undergone radiation where they have chronic ischemia, hyperbaric oxygen therapy can promote healing by delivering oxygen via plasma. Same mechanism as we've talked about for wounds caused by lower extremity arterial disease. Now you would think we would have great data on hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We have centers all over the country, but actually we have limited data. There's um, case studies and there's case series, but very few randomized control trials, actually no randomized control trials. And sometimes that causes problems getting third party coverage for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But those of you who work in these centers can probably tell us of a number of cases that you've worked on where you've seen hyperbaric oxygen therapy make a difference. So you think, how does it work? It works by delivering increased amounts of oxygen to the tissues. When is it gonna be beneficial in situations where the tissues are receiving inadequate amounts of oxygen to support the repair process? or where you need more oxygen to control bacterial loads. Now the guidelines usually patients get treatment five to seven days a week and each treatment is about 45 to 60 minutes and most conditions, the recommendation is 40 to 60 total treatments. Now this is fairly expensive therapy so you can see why third party payers may be pretty picky about who they cover. I think bullet point two is one of the most important bullet points for you as a wound care nurse to know. You don't have to decide, is this patient going to benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy? You have to identify their wound as being refractory. You have to identify chronic ischemia as being a probable reason for failure to progress and then you can recommend a referral to a hyperbaric oxygen center. Now, what they'll do is they'll do a pre-treatment workup. First of all, they'll rule out any contraindications or things that have to be addressed like inability to equalize pressures or whatever. But more importantly, they'll do tissue um, oxygen readings on room air And then they'll do tissue oxygen readings on 100% oxygen to see if there's a significant increase in oxygenation. In some centers, they'll even do a preliminary um, treatment to see if there's a significant increase in tissue oxygen levels. If you can show that there's a significant increase in tissue oxygen levels on 100% oxygen or on hyperbaric oxygen, then it's reasonable to assume that the patient will respond positively to hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You can typically get third party coverage and you you can expect good clinical outcomes. We've always said they have to rule out contraindications, untreated pneumothorax is an absolute contraindication, some drugs, pregnancy, A patient who's very claustrophobic is probably going to need some anti-anxiety agents. A patient who has difficulty equalizing might need tubes in their ears. All of those issues will be addressed by the hyperbaric oxygen therapy team. You don't have to worry about that. You just have to worry about identifying patients who might benefit and making sure that they get referred for hyperbaric workup. Now, one thing you should know, especially for patients who are gonna be managed in a monoplace chamber, remember that fire is a major um, hazard because they're gonna be in an oxygen-filled chamber. You don't want anything that would support fire. So you don't want any petroleum-based products. If you are using Vaseline gauze or Xeroform gauze, you should discontinue that, use a, water-based gel or something comparable or a silicone-based contact layer. So that's the main things you have to think about as a wound care nurse. Who might benefit? Where should you refer them? And how might you need to modify your topical therapy? Now, the last bullet point on the screen mentions hyperbaric oxygen therapy versus topical oxygen. So periodically, companies come up with topical oxygen, To date, topical oxygen therapy has not been shown to be very beneficial. It obviously, if it is shown in the future to be beneficial, it will be via a different mechanism because you cannot increase oxygen levels in the tissue by delivering oxygen topically. There's a reason we have lungs. So remember that oxygen gets into the bloodstream at the level of the alveolar membrane. Wounds don't have lungs, wounds don't breathe and so delivering oxygen to the wound bed itself is not going to increase oxygen levels. It does not mean that we might not find some benefit from topical oxygen but it will be a different mechanism of oxygen and at this point in time we don't have any therapies that are accepted and widely used. E-STEM I'm going to talk about very briefly. Now E-STEM has been used for a number of years and this is why they found that if you expose an open wound to electrical current, that you can increase the rate of cell migration, you can increase the rate at which bacteria are phagocytized, you can increase the rate of granulation tissue formation. Now all of this has been done in the lab, um, but there are enough studies that have been done in the lab and enough clinical um, case reports and clinical series reports done by physical therapy that there is some support for use of electrical stimulation as a general stimulus to repair. So when might you think about using e if you have access to this therapy? And you would typically provide this therapy in collaboration with a physical therapist because trust me, they understand electrical stimulation at a level we will never understand. So you might think about it for management of a refractory pressure injury. Remember it's considered a general stimulus to repair. It may be helpful for refractory leg ulcers. It's been used for those wounds in the past. We've already said limited um, evidence, some controlled trials on pressure injuries and leg ulcers. a lot of anecdotal reports and clinical series reports. You do want to rule out any contraindications. And as we've said, it's often administered by physical therapy and they can be very skilled. Some of your PTs are very skilled in using electrical stimulation to try to promote neoangiogenesis, granulation tissue formation, and bacterial control. Negative pressure wound therapy. This is one of the most widely used active wound therapies. I am betting every one of you have used negative pressure wound therapy and are pretty comfortable with applying the dressing and troubleshooting the therapy. So you know that basically what you're doing is you're applying negative pressure to the wound bed to stimulate healing. It works through the actions of macro deformation, meaning it pulls on the wound edges to stimulate contraction, and micro deformation, meaning that it tugs on the cells in the wound bed to activate repair processes. How is it administered you know this you fill the wound either with a special sponge or foam or with gauze you cover the wound with an adhesive drape and then you either put on a suction control pad and connect it to the negative pressure machine or you have suction catheters that are connected to the negative pressure machine and so what does it actually do Well, you've probably explained this to patients many times. So one thing I will tell them is first of all, it pulls all the fluid out of the wound bed. So it kind of eliminates or significantly reduces the risk of infection because you don't have that very wet environment that promotes bacterial growth. But it does maintain a moist wound surface because the wound is covered with that drape. We know it's critical to keep the wound bed moist so that cell viability is maintained and cell migration is promoted. The second thing that negative pressure wound therapy does is it reduces edema in the peri wound tissues and in the wound bed itself, which improves perfusion. And then as we've said, the two most critical um, mechanisms of action are macro and micro-deformation. So macro-deformation means that it tugs on the wound edges and promotes that contraction phenomenon. Micro-deformation, it tugs on the cells and promotes neoangiogenesis and synthesis of connective tissue proteins. So we know that if we start negative pressure on a Monday that definitely by the next Monday we typically see a marked increase in granulation tissue within the wound bed and improved quality of granulation tissue. So what are the indications? Negative pressure wound therapy is designed primarily to promote the proliferative phase of repair to promote granulation tissue formation. So it's indicated primarily for wounds that are clean, but either not granulating or granulating very slowly. Now, a lot of you know that we now have the option to use irrigation therapy with negative pressure wound therapy. So some of you have VeraFlow, or a comparable therapy that allows you to instill fluid and then suck that fluid back So you know that negative pressure wound therapy can be modified for use during the inflammatory phase. But so far, primarily negative pressure is used for wounds ready to granulate or slowly granulate. Great option for deep wounds with large volumes of exudate because it effectively manages the exudate. We don't have any dressings that manage large volumes of exudate nearly as well as negative pressure wound therapy. And if you have a deep wound, really important to promote and enhance granulation tissue formation so that you can fill the wound. Also, if you have a deep wound, that macro deformation that kind of pulls the wound edges together can be beneficial, can be very beneficial in managing surgical flaps and grafts through the mechanisms of reducing edema, enhancing perfusion. And finally, for large surgical wounds that are at risk for dehiscence or for compartment syndrome, again, by managing edema, maintaining approximation of the wound edges. General contraindications, heavily necrotic wounds. Usually you should debride first. Now, if you've gotten rid of most of the eschar, but you've still got some slough in the wound bed, you might use negative pressure either with or without that installation feature. What about infected wounds? You definitely have to treat infection. You can't treat just with negative pressure. You either treat the infection before you begin negative pressure or concurrently with the um, initiation of negative pressure. So it does not treat infection. Antibiotics treat infection. Wounds with untreated osteomyelitis. We know that untreated osteomyelitis is going to prevent durable healing. Even if the wound closes initially, it will open back up. Negative pressure is designed to promote durable healing. If you have osteo, that osteo has to be treated. If the osteo is treated and it recurs, then you have to reassess before you continue negative pressure because you know that as long as you have infected bone in the wound bed, you will not get durable healing. Negative pressure is an expensive therapy, so you don't want to use it on wounds with essentially no potential for healing. Malignant wounds absolutely never. You don't want to promote reproduction of malignant cells. And many times when we're using negative pressure, we're using it in wounds that have organs or vessels or critical structures like tendons, ligaments, bones and joint either exposed or very close to the surface. You have to be really careful because you do not wanna cause damage to any of those structures. And we're gonna come back to the critical importance of contact layers. What's the evidence base? Now, I thought before I really started investigating that we must have tons of evidence for negative pressure wound therapy because it's been around since I'm thinking, let's see, trying to think the 80s yes the late 80s mid to late 80s so I would think oh we have lots of data but no we do not have lots of good data we have multiple case studies we have case series we have many 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 clinicians will tell you who will tell you oh I've gotten great results I use negative pressure all the time but what do we have in the way of randomized controlled trials What do we have in the way of systematic reviews? Not much, very few randomized controlled trials, and the systematic reviews provide contradictory findings. So we have a way to go to create a strong evidence base. Even though as clinicians we see it work every day, we need that evidence base. Okay, so let's talk about specific systems and specific guidelines. This is a therapy you will frequently recommend, you'll frequently implement, so you want to be very knowledgeable about your options and things to think about. Most of us are primarily using sponge or foam-based systems, so that's VAC by Selody or Apria by Monlicky. There may be others, but those are the two major players at this point in time. So as you know, you have a porous sponge, it's placed into the wound bed, the wound is then sealed with a drape, a suction control pad is applied, connected to the suction machine. And typically the range is minus 50 to 200, minus 200 millimeters of mercury. And those levels, those suction levels, are based on the initial studies done with this therapy. So we do work within those recommended ranges. Now, if you're using the VAC system by Acelidae, you have access to three different types of foam. You've got white foam, which is a dense foam that's moist. It is much less adherent to the wound bed and much less likely to cause any trauma. It's also much less likely to leave any little pieces behind. So white foam is recommended when you have tunneled areas or deeply undermined areas. White foam is recommended if you have a patient with a tendency to bleeding, if you have a patient who complains of a lot of pain with um, sponge removal, We typically use white foam either with or as an option for a contact layer. So we use it to protect a wound bed if we see vessels in the wound bed, if we see a beating heart in the wound bed, if we see tendons, ligaments, bone, joints in the wound bed, if it's a vascular graft, So anytime you have structures either exposed or close to the surface and you need to provide protection of the wound bed, you're going to use either a white foam or a contact layer or both. Black foam was the original foam. So that's your porous foam that allows exudate to pass rapidly through, but it also tends to become very adherent to the wound surface. That's part of that micro deformation but it's also a risk factor for trauma to the wound bed, for bleeding, for pain with removal, for damage to underlying structures. So you never use black foam directly against the wound bed unless you've ruled out all those contraindications. Silver foam is a variant of black foam and it's antimicrobial. Um, You know that in the hospital, we have those big pumps that sit on the floor, sit on, or attached to the bottom of the bed, or attached to the IV pole. But when patients go home, they can be converted to portable systems, and the portable system fits in a holster that they wear um, over across their body. And we've already talked about the fact that now negative pressure wound therapy systems are available with an irrigation option if you're trying to do a combination of wound cleanup and promotion of granulation tissue formation. There are also gauze-based systems. Um, Prospera by DeRoyal is one of the gauze-based systems. And so you do moistened antimicrobial gauze into the wound bed, and then there are suction catheters that are placed into the wound bed and connected to the pump. There are also some some disposable portable systems, Pico and Snap. These are very simple dressings. They're almost like Band-Aid technology. So they're intended primarily for shallow wounds with limited volumes of Exudate, or for surgical incisions. So you literally just pull off the backing, put the dressing in place. It's connected to the little battery-operated pump that can be worn on the belt. Now you want to make sure that if you're recognize that if you're recommending negative pressure wound therapy for a wound that you get optimal results and that you prevent complications. There have been complications, there have been deaths when negative pressure was used incorrectly. So first of all, you want to be sure that that's an appropriate candidate, that the patient's appropriate, that the goals are wound healing, not maintenance or comfort. You wanna make sure that any contraindications have been addressed, like if the patient's anticoagulated, that you're using a contact layer, that kind of thing. Staff education is critical because you're not gonna be there all the time. It's gonna be the staff that maintains the therapy, that changes out the canister, that monitors what's going into the canister, and that is troubleshooting alarms and you know that there are two types of alarms. There's the leak alarm and there's the blockage alarm. Now a leak alarm basically means either the canister is full and there's no place for fluid to go and you need to change out the canister or it means that at some point along the periphery of the dressing or even in the center that you have lost your airtight seal. And that you need to reinforce that area of your dressing, re-establish your seal so that the negative pressure can work. As one of my patients said yesterday, oh yes I get it, the, vac- the vacuum doesn't work if the vacuum tube is not well attached to the vacuum itself. Exactly and if you don't have a secure seal. Blockage means that usually right at the level of the suction control pad, also known as the track pad with the vac system, something has happened. Usually it's a blood clot, but it could be very thick drainage. So it could be fistula output, it could be um, bloody drainage, the clot formation, whatever, that has blocked the sensors in that suction control pad. And what you're going to have to do almost always is cut away that suction control pad and apply another one. If something happens with the vac therapy with the negative pressure wound therapy when the wound team is not there and the staff has done what they know to do but they have not been able to re-establish a secure seal and effective therapy absolutely critical for them to know they have to either remove the entire dressing and initiate damp to damp gauze or at least cut away the central drape take out the foam put in damp to damp gauze if they just turn the system off they're turning the wound into a petri dish because the fluid has no place to go so that's a critical element of staff education Now we keep talking about potential complications of negative pressure, wound therapy, pain, bleeding, and tissue trauma. How do you prevent that? Well, you could use a gauze-based system. You tend to have much lower um, incidence of complications with the gauze-based system. Or you could use your non-porous foam, the white foam, or you could use a contact layer under the porous foam. So contact layers might be Adaptic, Adaptic Touch, Mepitel, Mepitel 1, Versatile, any of those. Many, many companies have contact layers that are designed for use with negative pressure as well as for use on surface wounds as we discussed in the last class. So, What do you have in the way of contact layers? You would not want to use Xeroform, you would not want to use Vaseline gauze because they're not going to allow free flow of exudate. But you could use Adaptic, you could use Adaptic Touch or any of the other silicone-based contact layer dressings. So you wanna make sure you have access to contact layers. We think you should be pretty liberal in your use of contact layers because they can prevent so many complications. So anytime there's a potential for significant pain, for bleeding, for tissue trauma, you should either use white foam, a contact layer, or white foam and a contact layer if you're using a foam-based system. The other thing that some clinicians do, we all turn the pump off before we remove the dressing, but some clinicians will actually instill fluid into the foam um, to try to loosen it before they start taking it off. Now, we don't think about this nearly enough, or at least that's our perspective, when to discontinue negative pressure wound therapy. So we've seen patients come in and they've been on vac therapy for months and we're like, well, is it still getting better? Well, not really that I can see. It got better for a while, and now it's kind of just stayed in the same place for a while. Go back to what does negative pressure do? What are the primary benefits? Exudate management and promotion of granulation tissue formation. So if your exudate is controlled, now you have low levels of exudate in a very healthy bed of granulation tissue, you can probably cross that patient over to moist wound healing, give them back their freedom, their mobility, and reduce the cost of care. If you have a wound that is stable, but you're definitely at the point of diminishing returns, so during the first, say, two to four weeks, every time you change the dressing, you could definitely see the difference And when you measure the wound on a weekly basis, you could definitely see, yes, the wound is filling in, yes, the wound is contracting. But for the last two weeks, there's been minimal improvement. It seems to have plateaued. Give them what we call a vacation. Take them off, cross them over to moist wound healing and see how they do. Sometimes they'll continue to heal at an acceptable rate and you can reduce the cost of care and improve the patient's mobility. Obviously, if the wound is deteriorating or there are significant issues with bleeding or tissue trauma, you're gonna discontinue. Okay, just a few more things to go over. Um, You may or may not be in a setting where they use ultrasonic mist. This is low-frequency, non-contact, non-thermal ultrasound. And the science behind it is you're using sound waves to deliver energy through the saline mist. And those sound waves create physical changes in the cells that can promote healing activities. So these are the theorized mechanisms of action and you know, based on what we know about sound waves and what we've seen in the lab. First of all, sound waves can help to break down small clots and can improve perfusion. And so sometimes this is used um, to manage deep tissue injuries. And there's some case studies that indicate positive outcomes if this is used for deep tissue injury management. We do not yet have good um, randomized controlled trials, but there's some limited data. Sound waves promote enzymatic and fibrinolytic activity, so can help to break down um, a vascular tissue, can help promote bacterial control and can actually break down the cell walls of, of the bacteria, so reducing bacterial counts within the wound bed, <coughs> and can promote fibroblast migration. So in limited studies, this has been shown to promote resolution of deep tissue injuries and to possibly promote healing of open wounds but our data is limited and that's why you don't see this widely used. So the last two things we're going to talk about briefly are split thickness skin grafts and myocutaneous flaps. This is donating tissue to the wound bed. So you know that a split thickness skin graft means that you take epidermis and part of the dermis from one area of the body and you put it over the wound. So we sometimes call this robbing Peter to pay Paul. In other words, you're gonna create a new wound to heal an old wound, but the new wound you create will be partial thickness and should heal normally and the wound you're going to cover is typically full thickness and a wound that has not healed normally. So when would you think about using a split thickness skin graft? Well, first of all, you might use it in a large granulating wound that's now granulated to the surface where complete epithelialization is unlikely or where epithelial resurfacing has stalled. So to complete the repair process, we're down to covering with new skin. The body's unable to do it on its own. We're going to move skin from one area to another to finalize closure of that wound. You can use it for any surface wound that fails to epithelialize. So it's been used a lot for venous ulcers. So they're surface wounds, they're clean, you've got exudate under control. The evidence is bacteria are under control, but it's just not epithelializing. Could we use a split thickness skin graft? And the answer is many times, yes, that's effective, and certainly burns. Now, when you're talking about split thickness skin grafts, your pre-op care and your care of the donor site are just as important as post-op care. So there's great data that's been done primarily by plastic surgery, where they have found that bacterial counts are the primary predictor of graft take or graft failure. And that if bacterial counts are low, less than 100,000 organisms per milliliter, 90% plus of grafts take. But if bacterial counts cross that line, 90% fail. So obviously very, very important to establish a clean wound bed to get bacterial counts under control before you do a graft. And obviously that wound bed has to be well perfused because as soon as I move skin from the thigh to wherever, Where is that skin going to get its oxygen and nutrients? From the underlying wound bed, the blood vessels in the underlying wound bed. There has to be very close communication and the wound bed has to be well perfused. So when I'm looking at a wound to determine is it ready for a split thickness skin graft? If there's slough, no, it's not ready. It's not even clean yet. If there's high volume exudate and the wound surface looks very poor quality, no, I need to get bacterial loads under control. So it has, you have to have a clean, shallow, well-perfused wound bed. Postoperatively, what are the critical things? When you talk about the graft site, the critical thing is very close adherence of the graft to the underlying wound bed for the first one to two weeks until you get ingrowth of vessels into the graft, okay? So we talked a little bit about that when we talked about non-surgical skin grafts, when we talked about your bilayered um, skin equivalent. If the site's close to a joint, you have to immobilize it. And in order to maintain that very close um, adherence and to manage any exudate, You either do negative pressure wound therapy, so you're pulling the layers together, or you do a compression wrap where you're pushing the layers together. Now, one thing I didn't say, but I probably should mention, when they do a split thickness skin graft, they always fenestrate the skin so that when they put it over the wound, there are little gaps in the skin that allow Exudate to pass through. So VAC therapy would pull fluid out and into the canister. Compression therapy would push the fluid into the cover dressing. Typically what happens when we do a split thickness skin graft, everybody pays a lot of attention to the graft site as they should because we want that graft to take, right? but many times nobody's paying much attention to the donor site and what patients tell us is the donor site can be incredibly painful because it's a surface wound and all those nerve endings are exposed to air. So critically important to do moist wound healing, keep those nerve endings covered by a layer of fluid. So do moist wound healing, do a contact dressing do uh, soft absorptive dressing there are some dressings that are intended primarily for skin care skin tears and donor sites <coughs> and we can talk more about that um, when you're on site but don't forget the donor site that's what the patient would tell you please don't forget my donor site do something about that Myocutaneous flaps, these are being used less often, but they can still be very beneficial in our overall toolkit for providing durable closure of full thickness wounds, especially in patients who are wheelchair-bound. So what do you do when you do a myocutaneous flap? Well basically, you elevate a flap of tissue on three sides. The fourth side remains continuous with the surrounding tissue, so it's left intact. So you've lifted a flap of tissue and now you're going to rotate it or advance it to cover the wound. So if I had a trochanteric wound, you might lift the tissue adjacent to the wound and rotate it to cover the wound. When would that be indicated? think about a patient who is spinal cord injured or has MS and they're wheelchair-bound and let's say they have ischial wounds now I can probably get those ischial wounds to close just with moist wound healing as long as the patient's willing to stay out of the wheelchair to be non-weight-bearing to adhere to systemic support for healing but the problem is if i allow those ischial wounds to close with scar tissue and epithelial resurfacing even following healing that wound is much higher risk than it was before because now tensile strength is at best 80 percent of original tissue so now i have a patient sitting on vulnerable scar tissue so especially when you have young wheelchair-bound patients you want to think about would it be better to close this wound with a flap and then sometimes you have situations where you know you're never going to get that wound to close unless you can flap it where there's some exposed bone and even after you shave it down it's very slow to granulate over there even after you control bone infection very slow to granulate could you close with a flap So those are the things that those are the situations in which you want to think about doing a plastics consult and then they can come in and they can tell you yes this patient is a candidate or is not most plastic surgeons are getting much more um what's the right word they have much higher standards for when they'll do a flap now because many of them have done multiple flaps they did a really good job on the flap and the flap failed why did the flap fail? Because the patient went right back to sitting on the flap or went right back to smoking. So a lot of plastic surgeons will say, I'm not going to do a flap until we're very clear about how you're going to protect this tissue after surgery. How are you going to modify your sitting behavior? The time frame, the type of cushion you're sitting on, you're monitoring. What about cigarette smoking are you willing to stop smoking so that this flap will heal normally so they may have a number of stipulations to be met before they think about doing this okay well let's say that the patient's been cleared by plastics yes this patient's a good candidate then you want to make sure you put this patient in a very good position to heal this flap you do not want to waste this tissue So you wanna make sure nutritional status is optimized. You wanna make sure glucose levels are normalized, that all comorbid conditions are optimized. I read one article by a plastic surgeon that said, if we take a patient to surgery for a myocutaneous flap and we haven't addressed smoking cessation and we haven't optimized nutritional status, we just threw away good tissue. So you wanna do everything you can. You want the patient to understand why it matters. You also want to eliminate any infection. Now, when they do the surgery, they will do a wide excision of the existing uh, pressure injury. It's typically a pressure injury. They'll do a wide excision. So that has the effect of eliminating most of the infected tissue, but most surgeons will Either administer antibiotics pre-op or at the time of surgery to drive bacterial counts down. Postoperatively they're going to ask you to put this patient on a surface that minimizes pressure, shear, friction, and moisture. Some plastic surgeons only want the patient on air fluidized therapy on a bead bed. Others will allow you to put the patient on a very high level air support surface with a low shear, low friction cover. Um, They might allow you to put them on something like dolphin technology where the interface pressures are constantly monitored and adjusted. Definitely we should gradually step the patient down from this very high level support surface. So you wouldn't take them off an air fluidized bed and put them on a standard mattress. You would gradually step them down. So they might go from air fluidized bed to an air support surface, and they should go home on an air support surface or at least a very high level, constant low pressure surface. What about their wheelchair cushion if this is an ischial wound? Absolutely essential that they be evaluated for the best possible chair cushion preoperatively. And that once we start getting them up, we get them up for very short periods of times and then gradually lengthen that. So very gradual increase in weight bearing. And finally, you want to be aware that the most common complications post-op flap are ischemia and vasocongestion. So you can get ischemia of the flap if they throw a little blood clot that blocks an artery or an arterial. So you're constantly monitoring the flap for cyanosis, coolness. If you develop sudden cyanosis or pallor of the flap, if it becomes suddenly cool, they're gonna take that patient back to surgery and do an embolectomy. So prompt identification, prompt notification of the surgeon. What about basal congestion? Why does that happen? When you think about you've rotated the flap so now all of the blood vessels in the flap have to kind of re-establish communication with the vessels in the surrounding tissue you've kind of moved them to a new neighborhood. Now interestingly arterial vessels are much easier to actually connect to each other surgically so when they do the flap they can typically anastomose arterioles to arterioles or arteries to arteries. Veins are much more difficult. They will gradually re-establish connections, but it takes a little while. So sometimes what happens is we get pretty good arterial inflow, so the flap is nice and warm and pink-red, but venous outflow can't keep up and so the flap becomes progressively more congested. Now it starts to look kind of dark red and kind of bulging edematous and if we do not intervene to manage that, then the edema can shut down the arterioles and cause eventual necrosis and loss of the flap. So what are the things we can do? For vasocongestion, sometimes they'll use hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Sometimes they'll use leach therapy because leeches obviously evacuate some of the blood, so they help to decongest the flap and they also secrete an anticoagulant so that blood continues to ooze out and to protect the flap. Now, obviously patient acceptance can be an issue, staff acceptance could be an issue, but leeches do work. Okay, the last couple of things, we're just gonna look at active wound therapy kind of from a big picture perspective. Some of your active wound therapies are very targeted. They're really indicated only for specific wounds. So what about hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Well, remember it has two major effects. It helps to normalize oxygen levels within the tissues and it helps the white blood cells fight infection. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy is appropriate for lower extremity wounds that are ischemic but viable with positive plasma flow. If the wound is totally necrotic, if it's covered with eschar, if it's gangrenous, it's too late. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy will not raise tissues from the dead, it will oxygenate viable tissue. Very appropriate for wounds with complex infections, appropriate for wounds with osteoradionecrosis. We've already said, studies have indicated no significant impact on pressure injuries, dehistoric incisions, that kind of thing. What about bioengineered skin substitutes? So the studies have been primarily on venous wounds and neuropathic ulcers, so that's where coverage is pretty much um, focused at this point in time. If you're using a bilayered skin substitute, dermal epidermal, remember it's a non surgical skin graft. It's indicated only for clean, superficial, or shallow wounds. And growth factors at this point in time are indicated only for refractory diabetic foot ulcers. Now, we do have some active therapies that act as a general stimulus to repair and can be used for any refractory wound your MMP inhibitors, the ones that attract or downregulate your pro-inflammatory proteases, your matrix metalloproteases. Those can be used for venous wounds, pressure wounds, surgical wounds, diabetic foot ulcers. They can be used across the board. Primarily, they're indicated for wounds that are clean not yet granulating and they have indications of persistent inflammation, like maybe high volumes of exudate. What about matrix dressings? Well, remember matrix dressings provide that scaffolding that allows cells to migrate, attach, reproduce and carry out repair functions. So they can be used for any refractory wound, So leg ulcers, pressure injuries, surgical wounds, as long as the wound bed is clean There's no major um, inflammation or infection, and the wound is just slow to granulate or slow to epithelialize. Negative pressure is another general therapy. We use it primarily for management of high volume exudate to stimulate granulation tissue in a wound that's slow to get there, slow to move into the proliferative phase. We use negative pressure to control edema post flap, post graft to promote repair by maintaining um, positive perfusion and close adherence of the graft or the flap to the adjacent tissue. Um, Also, you're gonna see increasing data about using negative pressure wound therapy prophylactically to reduce the incidence of dehiscence among incisional wounds. E-STEM has been widely used by physical therapists primarily for pressure injuries and venous ulcers. And so those are the wounds for which it's most likely to be used. So summarizing part two of refractory wounds, growth factors are used in diabetic foot ulcers primarily and sometimes in neurologic lesions, either synthetic gel or the solution produced by spinning down the patient's own blood. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is indicated for wounds that are ischemic but viable or wounds with complex infections. E-STEM is a general stimulus to repair and enhances blood flow and in the data we have suggests increased granulation tissue formation. Negative pressure wound therapy, one of the most widely used provides consistent exudate management, maintenance of a moist surface and promotion of wound contraction and healing via granulation formation. Skin grafts appropriate for uh, shallow wounds, they provide final closure as long as we get a take, which means we have to control bacterial loads and we have to maintain close approximation. Myocutaneous flaps are used to fill defects with vascularized tissue. So instead of allowing a wound to heal with scar tissue, we rotate Mm -hmm. vascularized muscle, fat and skin Into the defect. So, you want to, in your head, start to differentiate between targeted therapies and general stimulus therapies so you make appropriate decisions as to which one to use. Okay, that's it. Thank you.